just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Hello and welcome to This is Cannabis from X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. I'm your host, Lee Henderson, co-founder of Portland Craft Cannabis Company, Hi-Fi Farms. My co-host, Emma Chasen, is off today. The subject of today's show is going to be the various cannabis-related bills facing the Oregon legislature this session. And so, with me in the studio today to discuss... Our Sam Chapman, Legislative Director of the New Revenue Coalition and the Principal at New Economy Consulting, and Casey Houlihan, uh, Head of the Pacific Northwest Development for BDS Analytics, which is a leading market research and data analytics firm, uh, which focuses on the cannabis industry, and uh, he is also the Executive Director of the Oregon Retailers of Cannabis Association, which, for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to refer to as ORCA. Uh, which is a statewide trade association which represents over 350 retail cannabis businesses. Sam and Casey, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having us, Lee. Indeed. So to start, can I first ask you both to tell us a little, little bit about yourselves and how you came to the cannabis industry? Sam, why don't you start? Sure. Yeah. Um, I've been involved with broad-scale drug policy reform for about 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I got involved with um, drug policy at the University of Oregon as a student uh, and discovered a group called Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Worked on a variety of different advocacy issues from educating students on how to deal with police encounters at parties um, to educating students on what happens when you mix drugs and alcohol together. Um, It was kind of a a fringe taboo drug education that um, students were not getting anywhere else. And so we saw that there's a a huge opportunity to really fill that void and and provide some some factual information about the fact that, you know, if, you know, our belief is that we don't condemn or condone drug use, but we understand that people have the freedom to put what they want in their bodies. And if they're going to choose to do that, they should be educated. And so um, through Students for Sensible Drug Policy, uh, I got noticed by some medical cannabis activists in Eugene at the Mm -hmm. time, and I got my first job uh, in cannabis politics in 2010 on the Measure 74 campaign, which at the time was a ballot initiative to legalize medical cannabis dispensaries. Uh, I was a college outreach coordinator at that time. Um, You wouldn't believe how hard it is to convince students to give a about medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) so from there, that campaign failed, unfortunately. When was that? Like 2010. Yep. Um, And so from there, moving to 2012, we had Measure 80 on the ballot. um, And I was or had was in the process of graduating that year. Um, Measure 80, full legalization, unlimited possession, unlimited plant counts. It was pretty, pretty out Mm there. 47 percent of Oregonians still voted yes for that. And so that was a really big indication that we were almost there. Right. But if we had some new nuance, new language yep. that was a little more appealing to the soccer moms and grandparents who are typically uh, registered to vote at much higher rates than young folks, um, that we'd be able to get across the line. And so um, the one step before legalization in 2013 that we decided to take was to take medical marijuana dispensaries to the legislature. And so um, we passed, we wrote and passed House Bill 3460, which did exactly that, um, which really set us up um, in a really good way to um, take the next step towards full adult use legalization. And I should stop you right there and say that's about the time that you and I met. You and I have known each other for a long time. Sam was the first person that I met when I was... Uh, thinking about starting a cannabis company, it was right around the time of the passage of 3460 in like the late winter of 20. Uh, when was that? 2014, right? Yeah, so, something yeah, like that. Yeah, 2013, Just, I think. 20, yeah, yeah, maybe even end of 2013. <laughs> so yeah, I've known you a long time. So go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I want to establish that for the audience. No, I mean I got really lucky with the timing of all of this in that um, being involved on that activist side really set me up, you know, as a consultant and an advisor in the future for right. folks who didn't know what was going on. But hey, Sam's a guy that's helped, you know, uh, put these things in fruition. And, yeah, and you've been and, an advisor to Hi-Fi Farms for. Uh, since its inception. Yeah. Yep. Um, Full disclosure. And so, um, obviously, we legalized cannabis through Measure 91. I was um, instrumental in raising money and awareness for that campaign in 2014. Uh, Shortly after that, I worked with a colleague, uh, Casey Houlihan, here to make sure that 
Um, we had early adult use sales at existing medical dispensaries. We had legalized cannabis, but we were going to have to wait like a year, a year and a half out to like, for people to actually yeah, it was you know, a, buy, somewhat and of a buy cannabis. And so, um, you know, we were successful at the legislature in, in convincing them that, look, like, do you want to be collecting tax money now or wait a year and right. watch it, you know, go uh, go out the door? Um, and so since then, worked on a variety of other issues, um, you know, most recently over the last couple of years, really working on pushing legislation to create places um, for people to legally consume cannabis, which I'm sure we'll get to. Right on. All right. Uh, Mr. Houlihan, Casey Houlihan. Lee Henderson, thank you for having me. Indeed. So I've also been uh, at this cannabis game for a little bit myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, My history with it dates back to college or so as well, which was just a little over 10 years ago. Uh, I think I'm comfortable sharing this now. Uh, Over a statute of limitations ago, I was selling Mm -hmm. pot in college. Sure. making a little extra money as I could, and eventually that led to growing a little bit of pot. Very small scale, but enough where you could carve out a little bit of an extra living doing so. Uh, about 10 years ago, after saving up enough for that to buy a, a secondhand van, I uh, moved out to Eugene, Oregon, and it was late 2011. Uh, and since then, and actually a little bit before then, I've been working mostly in electoral politics, which is really kind of my main background, working either doing field or outreach or fundraising, communications work uh, for various campaigns in all different corners of the country. Uh, I've done some in New York, Virginia, a bunch, a bunch out here in Oregon since I've moved here. Uh, the first race I did when I got to Eugene was working for uh, former Mayor Kitty Piercy's re-election down in Eugene, so that really got me pretty well plugged into a lot of the folks in the community. Uh, I ran in an Oregon House race for uh, an existing incumbent in that point in fall of 2012, uh, and it was in 13 I actually worked in the Oregon legislature as a staffer for a couple of Eugene area representatives, uh, and that's actually also where I first met Sam because that was the session where we got House Bill 3460 yep. passed, so that was where our paths kind of first crossed. Uh, and then after that session had wrapped, I'd worked for a bit for uh, SEIU as a labor organizer. And then after that, nice. uh, I'd gone on to help the folks that were qualifying at the time IP53 uh, with the signature gathering efforts, which then became Measure 91. Measure 91. Right. Okay. So I was the field director for the Measure 91 campaign as well and headed up most of their Eugene and Southern Oregon outreach efforts for that. Uh, and that was kind of my official crossover once we got that measure passed mm-hmm. and all the cannabis folks were already reaching out to me asking for help in a lot of different ways. So early 2015, when we still had a lot of ongoing legislative issues that we needed to sort out in terms of implementing this legalization measure we just passed. Uh, Several shop owners had reached out to me about forming an organization, uh, just doing some lobbying on their behalf. I said, yeah, that's great. I could, you know, they wanted a a clear path for recreational uh, sales from the medical shops, which is makes perfect sense if you have a medical cannabis dispensary. Indeed. Uh, and I told them, yeah, that makes sense. I'd be happy to do the lobbying for y'all. But, uh, you know, how would it be instead if we formed an association and then this way we can have, you know, hundreds of members that support this thing and it can be an ongoing, sustained effort instead of just a temporary lobbying right. effort. Uh, and they said, yeah, great, that, do that. And so about four years later now, we've got about 350 members statewide yeah. that we represent and we're doing a lot that we and can. That, and that organization, again, is called ORCA. The Correct. Oregon the, Retailers can Sorry, what is it? No, you had it exactly right. It's yeah. the, the Oregon Retailers of Cannabis Association. Go. We go by Orca. And so we've got a, it's a great handful. organization. Thank you. We yeah. try. We've got a handful of bills that we're working on for this upcoming session that we're uh, hoping will be successful and uh, make some very important policy changes that we can get through. All right. Well, let's get into it. Please. All right. So we're going to be talking about cannabis issues facing the Oregon legislature. Um uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to ask you to kind of run through quickly for our listeners, like the logistical mechanics of how the Oregon legisl- legislative session works, because I feel like that's kind of part of this story, right? In a big way, yes. And I think we have some really unique limitations here and really unique advantages as Oregonians with the way that our government functions. Um, But just to give everybody a kind of very broad strokes once over, uh, our legislature is only in session passing bills for something like a total of seven out of every 24 months. They have a a long session every other year in the odd number of years. That's what we're going into right now. It's six months long. We've got a lot of opportunities to do some pretty substantive work during that time, get some meaningful legislation passed during that time. But as soon as that's over in late June, early July, we won't have another opportunity to do that until about February of next year when they'll have a short session. It's only one month long, and that's not really an opportunity to get any substantive changes through. That's mostly for housekeeping and for very non-controversial measures that maybe got most of the way through the policymaking process uh, in the uh, long session and then just needs a little bit more work to get through. So now that we're heading into one of the busier times of year, this is when we're most active, when we're most engaged. That's where the rubber hits the road. And it's when Oregonians have the most opportunity to have direct input in the way that this shapes up. And so it's really a matter of how involved people would like to get. The process can be very esoteric for folks that are not used to dealing with lawmakers or the policymaking process. But honestly, more often than not, I refer people back to the Schoolhouse Rock video. 
how a yeah. bill becomes a law. Sure, yeah. Still relevant. Still, still relevant. relevant. <laughs> I actually still link it on all the legislative accomplishment forums that Legislators we put out for our group. Yeah. I mean, it's on yeah, their yeah, homepages. Right, right. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many full-grown adults I've sat down with and sent the video, and it saved me a 20-minute conversation of explaining how everything works. But effectively, you know, you need a lawmaker to support a bill. You need them to draft the bill for you. That needs to go through a committee. It's a smaller aggregate of folks within the legislature. They have a conversation about it, discuss the bill on its merits, put it through an amendment process if it needs changes. And if you're lucky, that committee can land on a particular version of legislation. And if that's uh, acceptable to all of the folks, they'll vote on it. And if it advances out of committee, then it'll go on for a vote either in another committee or in front of the full chamber, either the House and the Senate. We've got both here in Oregon as well. Uh, and then once it gets through all of those various uh, hurdles on one side, it needs to go through all of the same hurdles on the opposite side. Right. If it started in the House, then it needs to go through the Senate. The bicameral. Precisely. And then after that, still needs a signature from the governor from in the order governor, to become yep. law. Cool. Although Oregon also has the pocket veto, so if she doesn't sign it, it still becomes law in 90 days. So that's a little bit into the weeds. Yeah, but, that's great. Love so, it. So right now we're in the early stages of a long session, which means folks like Sam and I are on our toes quite a bit down in the halls in Salem, having a lot of these conversations, trying to push things in the right direction and make sure that these committees, which is really the stage that most legislation is at right now, uh, can do the work that they need to, can get the information that they need to, are hearing from the people that they need to hear from on yeah. these important issues so they can make up their minds. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so let's get into some of these bills, and um, we're going to try to do this uh, as quickly as possible, but at the same time, like some of these are really going to need um, some explanation. So um, let's start with a bill called SB 639. Um, Sam, what can you tell us about X? SB 639? So Senate Bill 639 is a bill that Senator F Lou Frederick, um, I believe this is his district here in North Portland. Yes, it is. Yeah, um, and he's been a guest on the show. Yep. Um, Episode so, 12. So I've been working with Senator uh, Lou Frederick and Senator Floyd Przanski on introducing this bill, which seeks to license and regulate cannabis consumption venues and events. There's right. also a couple of additional things that we'll get into in, in a second here that it right. does. Um, but overall, as most people know, we have legalized cannabis in the state of Oregon. Indeed, we do. What a lot of people may not know is that it's it's a pretty privileged form of legalization. So, well, and what why I, is that? What do I mean by that? If you do not own your own home, chances are you are living in some type of facility, if you are lucky enough to live in a facility, mm -hmm. that has something in your lease requirement that says that you are not allowed to consume cannabis in your, in your premise at all, subject to being kicked out. We are now also seeing those leases say, not only can you not consume cannabis in your apartment or whatever it is, you cannot physically possess mm -hmm. cannabis. So who does this disproportionately affect? Renters, medical cannabis patients, people of lower economic status living in federal housing, and people of color. I don't think it's a stretch to say that if you are willing to take the facts on his face that people of color are getting cited and, you know, um, arrested for, you know, uh, simple drug possession, that they're probably also getting cited at a higher rate for cannabis consumption in public. The problem with that is the way that law enforcement reports those numbers, they're not drug specific. So we're never going to be able to know to how cannabis that, use. We're from. never going to be able to find out, unfortunately, the disparity of who is getting cited in public, right? And that's something that we really would love to find out. And we're going to be working on seeing to, if we can change some laws to get that data. But I digress. The bill. What does the bill do? Creates a new license type for consumption venues, right? Uh, and one one instance is that it can be a, a bring your own model. Right, um, which would be great for some of the existing facilities out there, some of which are here in the city of Portland. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also would allow a co-location of consumption at retail uh, stores. And so I think that's huge, right? Um, that's something that... You that's know, effectively the ca a cannabis cafe. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Lounge, Amsterdam consumption style. venue. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And Go ahead. And tasting room. Yeah, and tasting room. Tasting yeah, room. Exactly. Important, important. exactly. Thank you. Yep. Uh, and so um, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, the one unfortunate controversial, I say, quote, controversial aspect of it is that we need a waiver from the Indoor Clean Air Act to 
uh, really have meaningful reform within mm-hmm. the cannabis consumption space, right? Um, I don't think it, it's just it doesn't make any sense to force people to smoke cannabis outside. We live in Oregon for crying out loud, right? Uh, and not to mention that there are already affordances for um, other smoked products, right? Uh, I, I hesitate to really try and compare cannabis to tobacco very much because one, it's not right. comparable. Not at all. And two, that's what the opposition does. They but like they're to both equate... combusted substances. That's so right. For the stipulated. Go that's ahead. right. So, you know, if we're going to allow uh, hookah bars to exist and we're going to allow cigarettes to be smoked outside of 10 feet from every public doorway in the state of Oregon, why can't we allow people to consume cannabis in private, outside of public view, in a license and regulated place where there are guidelines on how you do it right that's the question that we're going to be asking the legislature this session right why can't we be treated like everybody else that's right and one of the things i'd like to add to that too just because this is a really important component to it oregon's clean indoor air act is actually very unique in this way some states have gone in the same direction as us but not most so even california now you're seeing some jurisdictions come up with allowances for indoor consumption venues they're not up against the same challenge of having a clean indoor air act that specifically precludes smoking or combusting of cannabis indoors we amended ours in 2015 to add cannabis specifically to the list of things that cannot be smoked or combusted indoors in any workplace. So that's a a very unique set of circumstances that we're up against. And one of the pieces of uh, information that we get from opposition is that they have a concern that because the Clean Indoor Act was so hard fought in the first place, uh, that there can't be any changes, any amendments, any exemptions to it whatsoever. But this is not something that's 20 years old. This is something that was slipped in relatively recently and it was one of the few pieces of legislation in 15 that did not go through the dedicated committee for cannabis issues this was kind of backdoored at the time so this was not something that most cannabis advocates allies lobbyists really had an opportunity to provide input on yeah right exactly so this was something that was done mostly by public health mostly behind the scenes and relatively quietly to expand the clean indoor air act beyond what anybody ever anticipated its scope being so what would the benefit? So thank you. Well, I, I'm curious. To, I want to kind of move to what the benefits of uh, 639 would be as far as you guys see it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first benefit is literally providing a legal place to consume a legal product because most people um, don't have that right now. Again, unless you own your home, I'm pretty sure there's the vast majority of Oregonians do not own their home, right? And again, that disproportionately affects a lot of already. Um, you know, a, marginalized, a of marginalized demographics. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, um, first and foremost, we see this as a social justice issue. Yep. We see this as a as an issue of public accommodation and an issue of really getting rid of, um, you know, what uh, our good friend Lee Berger calls can of bigotry, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, straight up, that's what it is. A lot of people laugh about that, but um, that's because. They probably don't use cannabis or know anyone else that uses cannabis. And so they see that we're being otherized in a lot of ways. And so first and mm-hmm. foremost, it's, it's oh, a, that in their privileged. That's right. They have that's a, right. a completely privileged experience. That's of, right. Of which, like, I can consider myself one of those people. Abs- I don't mean to. Absolutely. Nope. Yep. That's correct. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> secondly, uh, this is an issue of opportunity for the state of Oregon to capture or lose pretty quickly here um you know uh, there are economic incentives here i think that i would imagine huge ones i mean it's hard to quantify but it's obvious that if we have a glut of cannabis the the first the you know i'm gonna get off topic for a second then come right back the first Mm -hmm. answer is finding places to sell it in other markets to sell it in export Mm -hmm. thank you for covering thank you for covering that in previous episodes um but secondly people have to have a legal place to consume it the tourists that are coming here are going to buy more if they have a place where they know they can legally consume it right i mean i'm constantly hearing um you know from travel organizations that are getting calls on a weekly basis from flight attendants taxi drivers you know airbnb people like hey People are asking us where they can consume this product. They're coming for they're right. coming to taste the craft cannabis industry of Oregon, but they have no place to consume it, right? And so what's the reality there? The reality is that people are still buying some cannabis, probably not as much as they would. And when they ask the bud tender, they're going to get one of two answers. They're going to get the truth, which is, sorry, Oregon didn't think about the fact that you might actually consume this product. Right. Or you can just go around the corner, you know, or you got a car, right? Or like, you know, I'm pretty sure there's a park three blocks down the street and just, you know, 
it's where the kids play. So go go yeah. smoke your cannabis there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, and so so really, it's you know, on top of economic, it's a public safety issue, right? It it, it should not matter whether or not you consume cannabis or whether you like it or not. Just as if you should not, it should not matter, you know, uh, what other products you consume, right? Like, it's a legal legal product in the state of Oregon. It is contributing significant amounts of money to the state tax coffers, uh, which I do not think should go unnoticed at all. And you know, it's really just something that. Well, one thing that I'd love to add to that as well is just in terms of the economic potential that indoor consumption can offer folks. And again, I hesitate, like Sam mentioned earlier, to make a direct comparison to another intoxicant like alcohol in this case. But one of the things that people are allowed to do at a liquor store now is uh, a vendor is able to come in and set up a table and provide samples and information. And Oregon's cannabis market right now is extremely aggressive. It is a very uh, competitive place, and vendors right now are looking for any advantage that they can get to demonstrate to consumers why their product is superior. And because of a lot of other limitations on advertisement and outreach, cannabis businesses don't have the same platforms that a lot of other traditional businesses or industries have. And this would be one that's a very effective way of getting some of these uh, important pieces of information into the hands of consumers. And especially if that's something just like at liquor stores where people are able to sample a small amount of that product before buying a half ounce or an ounce of something. If there was a small, separate, secluded room with appropriate ventilation, the bill would allow retailers to set that up as a, a tasting room space. And there could be additional rules as part Absolutely. of that for making sure people don't consume too much or in that setting, making sure people aren't bringing their own cannabis if it's to a store. Right. And that can be set up separately than a standalone consumption venue where people can bring in their own cannabis. And the bill would allow right. for It's not both. a free-for-all. I mean, this is a very thoughtful, yeah. you know, sort of, yeah, go ahead. That, no, that's absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head. It was really set up to make sure that we could provide a series of different venues where folks could safely consume in doors and not be left out in the cold. And I don't say that just as a turn of phrase. I mean that anything that does not have an exemption to the Clean Indoor Air Act will literally force people out into the cold to consume. Right. And that's not to say that not, we're not willing to make concessions on some of this, right? I mean, we're actually we're asking to be regulated probably twice as much as any other intox, quote unquote, intoxicant industry out there, right? And so I think it's really important to realize that, you know, when we hear concerns about what about people getting too intoxicated and and smoking and driving and all of these things, these are legitimate concerns, just like they are for any other type of you know uh, recreational intoxicant, and so. Those same things apply in terms of bud tender training, right? I mean, what, you know, pe- the idea that people are just going to come in and get blitzed, and there's not going to be any sideboards around, making sure that you know bud tenders can make sh- can tell whether or not you're too intoxicated. Are there some nuances with cannabis that don't apply to alcohol? Sure. Yep. Can the baseline still be applied of education and safe and consumer safety? Absolutely, right? I mean, there's models where you know, that are happening right now in California and some of these local jurisdictions where, you know, if it's your first time when you're checking in, you get asked, is this your first time consuming cannabis? And if the answer is yes, you get a red wristband <laughs> that basically tells the bud tender, okay, you get a five minute spiel yeah. and you're going to tell me about who you are and your use and what you're interested in and where you're going after this. And that's going to help indicate to the bud tender how to best serve that consumer, Right. If it's your thousandth time, you get a green wristband, you buy it, and you're all, you're off, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's levels of education and and guidelines and and things of that nature that we will absolutely implement for this. So when we hear opposition say, "Well, people are just gonna get high and go drive," it's like, well, not exactly. There's mm-hmm. gonna be plenty of moderation and plenty of sideboards around that, and it's going to be a reg- a more regulated and more monitored industry than it is now. Because guess what? Legalizing cannabis did not invent people smoking and driving. Uh, final thought, Casey, uh, about uh, about this bill. Um, you know, regarding some of the public safety uh, arguments against it. Well, Sam brought up a lot of really good points, too, and that's something that we've been hearing from a lot of the opponents uh, to this bill on the public health side and the public safety side is some of the specific concerns that they have about people consuming at the social consumption venues and then being let out into the street and how they would have no way of monitoring or overseeing what kind of damage that they could cause to the community. The or monsters. Driving. Monsters. Precisely. Meanwhile, at the same time, you know, it's not uncommon at last call for people to order a bunch of drinks right after they've been drinking all night. And as soon as they consume it, they're out into the streets and it's at least an hour before something like that gets fully into their blood. 
bloodstream. Right. And if we which, can't, which have, you stipulate isn't great, but go no, ahead. Right, yeah, but, right. But we, what we need to do is have an honest conversation about how the harms of one of these compares to the harms of another, right. so that we can demonstrate that under, under almost any circumstances, cannabis is the less dangerous, more safe option for these people. And there's no compelling policy reason why we shouldn't be allowed to have people consuming indoors. Why the double standard? Precisely. All right. Uh, on that note, let's take a break, and we will be right back with uh, Sam Chapman and Casey Houlihan. You are listening to This Is Cannabis on X-Ray FM. This Is Cannabis is brought to you by the Craft Cannabis Alliance. The Craft Cannabis Alliance is a network of values-driven, Oregon-owned companies committed to defining, supporting, and celebrating authentic craft cannabis and building an industry dedicated to people, place, planet, and plant. The Alliance is leading the fight for interstate commerce in legal cannabis through the One Fix campaign. Export is the centerpiece of a successful Oregon industry that will support hundreds of farms and dozens of companies, providing world-class artisan products to legal markets and cannabis lovers everywhere. All right, and we are back. If you were just joining us, you were listening to This Is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. My name is Lee Henderson, and with me in the studio today are Sam Chapman, the legislative director of the New Revenue Coalition and the principal at New Economy Consulting, and Casey Houlihan, head of uh, Pacific Northwest Development for BDS Analytics, which is a leading market research firm that deals with the cannabis industry, and he is also the executive director of the Oregon Retailers of Cannabis Association, otherwise known as ORCA. Thank you guys for staying with me. We are talking about cannabis legislation uh, that is facing the Oregon legislature. Those are not fun words to say. Those Legislature is not a word that just rolls right off the tongue. Um, all right, so... Uh, we spent the first half. Uh, we spent the first segment of the show talking about SB six thirty nine, which deals with uh, social consumption, cannabis lounges, and tasting rooms. Uh, there are uh, a number of other bills, however, that are also um, facing the legislature. Um, let's talk about SB five eighty two. Happily. And so we can handle a lot of the rest of these in a little bit of a lightning round format sure, because sure, some sure. of these are pretty That's what clear I'm hoping cut. To, and to, yeah. 582 is a really important one. We actually just had a hearing on that last week as well. So what this bill would do is set up a framework within the state that would allow for us to remove all of the statutory barriers that we currently have to exporting this surplus supply of cannabis. This is the that export we have. bill. That's right. And right now, the way that it's shaping up, it really looks like what they're trying to do is not permit explicitly the governor to proceed with these types of interstate transactions prior to federal legalization, but make sure that there are absolutely no barriers such that as soon as the federal government flips the switch and allows the trade of cannabis between states, yeah. that Oregon can be the first the one that operates. in the chamber. Absolutely. Yeah. First one out the door, make sure that we've got that, what is it, six and a half year supply right now, I think, is the current backlog yeah. of, of wholesale. Indeed it is. Flour. And so that could be very easily and very quickly converted into revenue for our schools and for our law enforcement. It's really just a matter of making sure the legislature has the will to do so. Right. And I cannot even begin to describe the number of jobs that that would create, particularly in some of the southern Oregon areas of the state that are, you know, the high that production have been the counties. Hit. Certainly the hardest hit in terms of the loss of uh, local revenue from, say, timber taxes that are no longer coming in and areas that need jobs desperately. And so we could be creating 10, 20, maybe 30,000 jobs with this because the number of producers that are licensed in the state right now, currently sitting at around 1,200 and another 900 or so in the queue, could employ many more people each if they were able to scale up their production to meet a national or international demand. Yeah. So and for listeners that may or may not know, we actually did an entire uh, episode on this. It's episode 11. If you go to the podcast, um, this is the one fix solution. Right. And you can go to onefix.org to find out a lot more uh, than what Casey just laid out about this very, very, very important export bill. You can. And, and Adam Smith from the Craft Cannabis Alliance has been really instrumental, and I know that you had him on before yeah, as well. He's, and he's a, been speaking really wonderfully to this specific issue. And it's and like the it's getting it. a lot of movement. It's getting a lot of press, you know? Like, it it seems like there's... Like, what's the opposition there? Is it Billy Williams? Is it... So, to be honest, most of the opposition that we've heard in the building is coming from folks within government that have concerns about what happens if the state proceeds with these types of interstate transactions before it's federally legal. Like We've definitely heard a lot of pushback from folks in the governor's office who have a lot of concerns about her signing on to a multi-million dollar interstate illegal drug deal. Right. What happens if the state breaks federal law? Which is a fair question, but at the same time, and this seems like a good time to mention I'm not a lawyer, mm -hmm. but... I've heard from many lawyers that there is a really sound argument to be made that everything that we are doing as a state to regulate cannabis within the state, from our medical program all the way to recreational adult use 21 and over stores, is all federally illegal. There is yeah, no yeah. pretense totally. whatsoever. We've been, we've been breaking federal law for a long time. That's right. 20 plus Colorado's years. Colorado's been breaking it longer. 
So I don't understand necessarily what makes them think that that's going to be the, the issue that causes the DOJ to use its extremely limited resources to go after states that on both ends of that transaction are following state law and the will of their people. Right. And if anything, that might be the thing that finally forces this change to happen federally, which I think could happen within the next two years. And that's one of the reasons why, especially with Oregon's extremely limited legislative calendar, that we do this now. Right. We do not want to be stuck in a situation where we have to wait another year and a half or two for a legislative session to roll around so we can make these changes. Because if we're doing that, some other state isn't going to. California's got a full-time legislature, and they've got plenty of production areas. So we want to make sure that Oregon is first in the nation to do this. Indeed. All right. Um, so again, you can find out more about that at onefix.org. Moving on, let's talk about HB 2655, which... Um, is another really, I think, critically important one, frankly, almost as important as, as, as social use. Well, I actually think this is a really uh, common overlap between a lot of the stuff that Sam works on, a lot of the stuff that I work on. And I could be wrong, but I think we're actually the only two dedicated cannabis lobbyists in Salem. That is to say, there are other folks that lobby on behalf of cannabis in the industry at large, but they also do contract lobbying for other clients right. and are mostly known primarily as lobbyists. I believe Sam and I are the only folks that are specifically dedicated to doing cannabis-only lobbying uh, in the building. And so uh, 2655 is a fascinating one on the House side. We worked with Representative Gorsuch on, who's a former law enforcement, current professor over at uh, Mount Hood Community College. And so what this would do is make it illegal to require a drug test for cannabis, a urinalysis for cannabis, as a condition of employment, whether that's pre-employment hiring or for potentially losing your job. Right. And we don't think anybody should miss out on any economic opportunity because they chose in their off hours to consume cannabis. To not uh, break the law. I want to clarify what this bill does not do is allow people to show up impaired to their jobs and prevent their employers from being able to fire. Is them. that some of the like the political pushback and That's sort of most the, of the histrionics around it? That's most of the pushback that we get right now is from employer groups, specifically in heavy fields. Uh, you know, whether it's hazardous materials or heavy machinery, sure, construction fields. You know? But and I mean, we it's, have, it's BS. But it's like it's well, a, you and know. further, we have exemptions in the bill for basically anybody that's showed up to oppose it thus far. So that if you are working on a work site where there is any public safety concern for your employees, if they have any residual amount of cannabis lingering in their system, then you don't have to have this applied. You. But if we're talking about plaid pantry or we're talking about somebody that mops at Fred Myers or any other number of jobs where you're not going to be presenting any public health hazard to yourself or others if you consume cannabis in your off hours, right. then there's no reason why that should not be allowed. And so this gets to what Sam mentioned earlier about privileged legalization, where you know a CEO of a company is almost certainly not going to get drug tested, but you know the folks that are you know doing the bagging of the groceries or washing dishes or whatnot are. And that's a profoundly unfair system. It's worth mentioning, and I brought this up during the hearing that we had earlier in the week on this bill too, that the folks in the legislature and their staff are not drug tested as well. And thank huh, God what for do you that, know about that. Because if they were, boy, that would be a kaleidoscope of results that we would see. Yeah. Well, I, the only thing I want to say on this is that <clears throat> this is almost as important for the employers as it is for the employees. You know, I can't think about how many friends, you know, that I've had conversations with about like, I was going to apply for this job, but there's a drug test and I use, right. what is this and I, labor market, and I use right? cannabis, right? Yeah. And I, and I, you know, and my first question is like, do you know whether or not they're specifically testing for cannabis? And the answer is always no. I have no idea. I just assume that's what they're testing for. Right. Now, it's hard to say, and no company is going to say, or some most companies are not going to say, you know, take this drug test, but if you if if you come in hot for cannabis, you're fine. Right. 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 Like, no one's going to say that because that's a liability for them to that's say a, that. That right? seems like an HR problem. But, I mean, we've heard stories going at three, four years ago that the DEA is having problems hiring agents because yeah, the of FBI. their drug test. Yeah, the FBI. This was, this right. The FBI is having, right. I've read that. The, the cybersecurity division, you know, because yeah, they were exactly, trying to exactly. hire white hat hackers, and right. one of the requirements for the longest time was you have to have a, a clean result on a canvas test for something like six Comey months, I think. James right. Comey testified in like open session once about how they couldn't find good yeah. cybersecurity and people so they because they all smoke weed. So they yeah. dropped that requirement. Yeah. Right. So this yeah. is how we can force federal change. You know, the Silicon Force would not exist in the city of Portland if all of them were drug testing for cannabis, right? So really being able to show employees that you, you know, you've got this one piece that we can carve out here. I'm, I'm actually a, a proponent of, you know, whatever you do on your own time in your own home is your business. Indeed. As long as it doesn't affect anyone else or affect your performance, butt out, right? Um, and incrementalism and politics at the end of the day are going to be 
you know that's what, the, what ranks king. Yeah, yeah. That's, well, how, it, that's how, how it works. But. And Oregon, additionally, it's worth mentioning, has the highest rate of failures for pre-employment drug testing for cannabis. It's something like 4.6%, wow. which is like a full percentage point higher than the next state down in the line. So we have a huge number of people that are failing these pre-employment drug tests for cannabis relative to any other place in the country. According to the latest Consumer Insights data from BDS Analytics, it's 41% of folks in Oregon now, 21 and over, have consumed within the last six months. So a very significant percentage of those could technically be ineligible for a great deal of the jobs within the state. And that's a profoundly unfair system. So we're trying to correct for that here and create something that provides a little bit more fairness, a little bit more uh, of a level playing field. Yeah, folks. super important. All right. Thank you about for that. All right. So let's talk about, um, I think, frankly, the another critically uh, important one, if not the most critically important one, which is SB 420. So this is something that uh, the Office of Senator Frederick has been working on. We've been trying to do what we can to support their efforts as well. And so this would create a pathway for automatically removing or expunging uh, past criminal, uh, criminal cannabis offenses uh, for things that would no longer be illegal under the right. law today. And the same goes for if you'd had a felony charge at the time that might still be illegal today if it were for large amount of sales. We That'll had, still be scaled down. That'll still be revised and revisited so that your record will no longer reflect that that was a felony at the time. It would reflect that now it would be the equivalent of a misdemeanor or civil citation. Or and we had we had Senator Frederick on the show, uh, and listeners can go back on the podcast episode 12 to find out and hear from him uh, hear from, from him personally on this. But can we talk about what can we talk about briefly what these criminal, these past criminal offenses on people's records, the damage that that does? Again, going back to like the labor market and what we were just talking about. Definitely, and it's a lot deeper than that too. But obviously, voting rights. Oh, I have voting rights. No, no, that's that doesn't apply here. Sorry, it, it actually does, and does I'll tell it? you why. Okay, because yeah. in Oregon, some of these cases that are 10, 20, 30 years old are still on people's records, and several of those people uh, have subsequently moved to states where cannabis ah, is still okay. illegal or where felony voting rights are not as strong as they are here in Oregon. Where, right. Yeah. Whereas in Oregon, as long as you are not currently incarcerated, you can vote. Several other states have it. If you have anything on your record, substantive yeah. no, or any totally right about that. F mark at all, then yeah, that's right. So if you've moved somewhere else, then that's going to be a factor in how you're able to participate in your local government. We want to make sure that nobody is suffering or, you know, denied their constitutional rights right. to participate in government just because of, you know, them being previously a victim of the war on drugs, which we know now was wrong in the first place. And obviously this does have a disproportionate impact on communities of color and the folks that were taking the brunt of the damage from the war on drugs for years and years. These offenses disproportionately fall on communities of color. And so this is a really easy way that we can try to provide some element of justice to the folks uh, that were denied that. Obviously, in addition to uh, the voting rights, Many employers will require a background check, and if they do have a felony drug charge in their past, that could preclude them from getting that job. And it's not just jobs either, but certainly housing this applies right. for Housing well. is the other and like, you know, critical, huge component of this. And it doesn't end there either, but this impacts people's lives in many varieties of ways. I know you just mentioned an example previously, but a, a friend of Sam and I's down in Salem, his father recently tried to apply to uh, be a little league coach for his grandson's game, and was denied because of a 20-year-old cannabis possession charge. So this is having mind. this massive impact in people's lives economically, socially. And it's just depriving people of dignity in so many ways. So we want to just set up a very easy pathway to have that apply automatically. We do have an existing pathway in Oregon for expunging these past cannabis offenses, but it's costly. You need to hire a lawyer. It's you Byzantine. need to petition the court. Yeah. And so therefore, it does not get it's into the hands. for white people. Precisely. Right. And it doesn't get into the hands of folks that need it the most. So we can do this automatically. Yeah. We just need to change the state statutes The people who don't trust it. the system for good reason... Don't even have access to it. Yeah. Well, and considering the system is the one that provided the pathway for expunctions that requires you to hire a lawyer, brought to you by lawyers, that's obviously a concern. So right. we want to make sure that that's more accessible, more revolutionary, and can actually achieve some element of justice that we can measure. Uh, okay, moving on to, uh, yeah, just again, SB 420. How is that one, how is that one doing? Like, you know, we'll, we'll sort of go back through and, say, and sort of grade how the progress on all these are going real real quick. But so I don't want to get too technical in terms of, like, any of the details of what happens down in Salem. But bills, uh, if anything is going to cost money, then there is a report that's attached called a, a fiscal impact statement, right. or FIS. And really the only thing that could kill this legislation at this point from where I'm standing would be if opponents tried to attach a very large fiscal impact statement to it saying that it's going to cost the taxpayers a lot of money to make this happen. And so if that were to happen, then we could conceivably see opponents to this rise up. Otherwise, and this is something that we've been doing a lot of lobbying about, We've yet to encounter anybody who thinks this, this concept like the, the, is the, the most non-controversial one. It's definitely from my where I sit. That's absolutely right. Okay, great. All right, so let's move on to SB twenty six eighty seven, which was uh, something I so I I knew somewhat about these uh, all the ones we've talked about so far. I did not know about this one, which is very, I don't know, which was very. It, I found this one. Um, 
really just kind of dark, you know? I was actually really surprised at the time because this bill got a hearing a couple of weeks ago as well, and Orca was the only uh, cannabis industry group that had bothered to turn up about this. But right now there are still people that are getting denied organ transplants because they have a residual amount of cannabis in their system. Even if that's a part of their you know normal uh, routine for self-care or uh, under the guise of uh, medical care, you know even with an yeah. appropriate doctor's recommendation, does not matter. And so catch we, 22. And we already have existing law in Oregon that says that you cannot deny somebody an organ transplant simply on the basis of them having an Oregon medical marijuana card. And what people are being denied for right now is not having an Oregon medical marijuana card, but being medical marijuana consumers. So mind boggling. And you're the, the, yeah, the, I the mean, face like, you just made is exactly the face that the folks on the committee made when uh, it was this woman who showed up whose husband was being denied uh, a kidney. Being, again, once more, being denied uh, an organ transplant because they had cannabis in their system. And this is a particularly egregious case where this woman showed up to, to talk about, too, and I was really glad that she did because uh, her husband in his situation was having a lot of back pain issues for the years leading up to him needing a transplant. And the back pain turned out to be because of his kidney problem. It was pushing up into his spine and it was causing a lot of pain. Right. So that entire period of time that he was waiting, the doctors were giving him opioids. And he didn't want to take them because he's under, you know, understanding of the long-term risks, long-term yeah, sure. potential damages of that as well. So during the time that he was waiting, he was using cannabis to treat his lower back pain, which any medical professional that's up on the latest science will tell you that that is a preferable option. Yeah. And yet he's still denied life-saving medical care as a result. What happened to that guy? I believe he's still waiting. All right. Finally, uh, Casey, you have one here that we added at the last minute, SB 716. Can you tell us about that? I don't know anything about it, but I can. And this one's personal for me too, because this is encountered. uh, This is something I encountered a couple of times, but there increasingly is a trend where a lot of businesses are not accepting cash. And this is not specific to the cannabis industry, but right. obviously, this is just like a Mexican restaurant. It's like credit cards only. I've had this happen to me at bars or a cider house in Portland recently just went in this direction. And actually, not just uh, eateries or anything either, but this happened to me at my doctor's office about six months ago. So there's increasingly this trend of a lot of businesses not accepting cash. Yeah, I've seen this. And so we've looked into this, and apparently it's discriminatory as hell. There's yeah, a lot of groups. super classist. Not you know? just classist I mean, either, but apparently it has a massively disproportionate impact on communities of color. And apparently some places on the East Coast are looking at similar policies in a response to this, and uh, I was doing some research on this for Oregon. Massachusetts is the only state that has a law about this, I'll get to that in a second, but uh, the D.C. City Council was looking at this, and they did some studies on this and showed that in in D.C. and in that area, the black population, uh, 20% of them is uh, unbanked completely, and something like 36% are underbanked. And that could even just mean that there's a more convenient check cashing place than your branch of your bank, which could be you know two bus rides away or something like that. So people don't have, as a practical matter, access to banking services. And it's really discriminatory and incredibly wrong that we're making folks and, and so many folks that are already, uh, you know, either tipped employees or hourly employees or folks that are otherwise being marginalized, that we need to make sure that they make time during their day, during billable hours to, you know, go out and make a special trip to a bank to deposit their cash, to be able to put it on a debit card, to be able to spend the money that they've already earned. And further, there's a tremendous number of people, certainly a lot of folks in age whose credit is just irredeemably screwed up because of student loan student debt loans, or yeah. any other mistakes that they made when they were young yeah. and just simply do not have have access to credit or debit or banking services. And we do not think that it's appropriate for there to be effectively a de facto credit check before you order a beer at a bar. Yeah, That's extremely discriminatory. And so, uh, you know, when I was looking into this, a lot of people were surprised to learn that there's no federal protection whatsoever that says that money must be taken. We all read what it says on the money and we all think that that's held up in federal law. It's not. It's just what it says on the money. Legal tender, all debts, public and private, Mm. meaningless in the law. Massachusetts is the only state that has any protection like this already. And they say that if you have a retail establishment, you can't not accept cash. You can't just have it be card only. So what we did is we took Massachusetts law, we expanded it, we made it fit to Oregon. Uh, So here it's also including food, shelter, essential services, anything like that. Um, But basically, if you are a retail seller or provider of any of those services, you can't deny cash. Yeah. And this, of course, affects the cannabis industry and it because of the, ca- the cannabis industry is not allowed to have legal banking in most cases. And so, right. So certainly if our but, folks I mean, have to disproportionately deal in cash, they better be able to bi- at least use it at places. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that is basically uh, all of the bills that are uh, all the legislation that the Oregon um, that's going to be before this Oregon session. Can I ask you guys, I'm throwing this out. We didn't talk about this before, but the safe banking act that um, they just had a, a session on in the financial services committee like do you guys know anything about that as far as federal this is federal le- legislation but this ties back in right to the cash thing we were just talking about 
No, it, it does. And actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I wasn't sure if we'd be discussing federal legislation. Yeah. There's two and I, didn't, I, I don't want to get super, I don't want to talk anything more than this, but this is like very timely, right? Absolutely. Understood. And so this is actually a really big deal, and especially with the uh, vacancy that was created by Pete Sessions losing last year in uh, his I hate seat. that guy. Yeah, a lot of people. A uh, Republican of t- Texas, right? I believe so. Yeah. And so no he had been, correct, he had been the biggest bottleneck in uh, any cannabis legislation, even some pieces of legislation federally that were extremely popular, yeah. uh, from even getting a single committee hearing, like one of these early stages of the process, would not even allow it to advance. Yeah. So now that he's out of there, and now that he's no longer chairing that particular committee, uh, and now that the makeup of leadership looks very different in the House, certainly, uh, the bill's been called up for a first hearing. And what's interesting, especially about the banking bill, is we've got a tremendous number of supporters on both sides of the aisle for that legislation. I believe it's approximately an even number of uh, uh, sponsors from Republicans and uh, Democrats on that. So it's not really controversial to anyone at this stage. And so if we have a pathway for that bill to advance, we could have banking services by the end of the year. Yeah. So just to be clear to our audience, uh, there was a hearing on February 13th uh, on Capitol Hill uh, in the House Financial Services Committee. And the the piece of legislation they were discussing is called the Secure and Fair Enforcement or SAFE Banking Act of 2019. And again, it's to make banks uh, able, which I think they want to at this point, uh, uh, to be able to accept uh Cannabis companies have, have let cannabis companies have uh, accounts, um, which they are prevented from doing in most cases now due to its federal illegality. So it, this is actually an interesting nuance, too. Right. Banks are allowed to give cannabis accounts uh, to businesses. Okay. But there is a tremendous amount of additional due diligence that they need to do in order to allow for that. There's uh, a lot of additional forms, a lot of different um, investigative uh, investigative work that they need to do to make sure that, you know, all the yeah, accounts are a, up to I date. Mean, and Hi-Fi Farms is, I mean, we were, you know, we have, we there's the compliance on our bank account is crazy. And so because of that, and because of the cost for the bank involved, the overwhelming majority of banks don't. Right. But this is a choice that they make because of this additional cost. So what we're really doing is removing the need for this additional cost uh, from this additional oversight. So once that's out of the picture, I think every bank is going to jump into the mix. But that's why right now, as you pointed out, in Oregon, we have one. One. One yeah. for the entire state. Um, yeah, I mean, this to me is would be such a critical breakthrough for sort of, le- you know, the legalization, the national legalization movement, um, being able to uh, to have federal banking uh, allowances on a kind of a mass scale. Well, and access to capital. And, and, know, yeah, and yeah, traditional, co- traditional financing. Commercial right? credit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. SBA loans, yada, et cetera, et cetera, right? I also think that this is a really important uh, sort of canary in the coal mine, but in a positive way, because right. if we do demonstrate that we have a pathway to get through some of the more common sense reforms that legalization states need in order to proceed, even if that's short of federal legalization, this is huge. So that huge. means it opens the door up not just for banking, but to ADE. And actually, the only other thing that I wanted to mention federally is that there is a sort of companion bill to the one that we're working on here for employment protections that would apply to federal employees in states where cannabis is legal so that they could consume as well. Right. And so if we have that pathway, this is a big deal. OK, so now that we've sort of talked about all these different issues, um, the Safe Banking Act aside, which is um, you know not specific to Oregon, I wanted to ask you guys to talk about what our listeners can do to support them if they do sure yeah so in terms and also what the timeline is i'm sorry what the time sensitivity is yeah absolutely and i'll kind of give a, a current snapshot in terms of where senebel 639 is for um, cannabis consumption venues and events and um, deliveries to hotels as well i forgot to mention that part right um so right now we are the bill is on the senate side in the senate business and general government committee uh, it's not public yet, so this is going to be a little uh, a little extra uh, piece of information for your listeners here. But we will be having a hearing in that committee on the 28th of February at 8 a.m. in Salem in House Room B, I believe. Okay. Uh, and we'll have more information up on NewRevenueCoalition.com about that. Um, but, you know, really what we need people to do is be contacting their representatives, urging them not only to support this bill, but to sign on as a sponsor and specifically if you have a legislator, if your legislator is in this committee, which we can help find, we can help you get connected with who your legislators right. are, and you can also just Google Oregon, who is my legislator, and you can find the tool. It's, for very, it. it's really easy yeah, to do. Yeah, super easy. Yeah. Um, 
and we're going to need to have some people show up. We're going to show up in force uh, on the 28th and really make sure that we have folks making every single argument that we've already talked about here, that this disproportionately affects renters, people in federal housing, medical cannabis patients, people of color. And this is really like a social justice and public safety issue, first and foremost. And legislators need to hear that from their constituents. And I think it's important that... You know, a lot of people, understandably so, and myself, you know, for the longest time, are very disenfranchised with the political process because it doesn't right. seem accessible. It's confusing. It's daunting. Um, you know, it involves public speaking a lot of the time, right. and not right. everyone loves to just jump up on the stage like Casey and I do and can just wing it and do all right. Um, but, you know... <clears throat> There's a lot of money and influence. People also think that their their voice does not matter because this machine runs on money and influence. And that's true, but only to a certain extent. And this, especially in the cannabis industry, I think the cannabis industry is one of those specific issues where there are enough consumers that are voting constituents mm -hmm. to where the equation of money and influence working against us starts to kind of equal yeah, out e when yeah, we have enough people that are constituents that say i voted for you and this is what i i want to hear your legitimate concerns and if you're still have those concerns after i've legitimately addressed them like we're going to find someone else to represent uh, this district right i mean we can't continue to have legislators that are ignoring you know the social justice public safety and business aspects of these people who are asking them who they represent to represent them Right. And so I do think that um, it's going to be important for legislators to heed that lesson. Mm -hmm. And the lesson I want to give for that example, the, populi, baby. The, the example I want to give is how our current attorney general got into office. Most people don't know this story. It's because of cannabis. She was not pro medical marijuana by any degree. Mm -hmm. And this is a primary. There's a Democratic primary. This is a, a, a Ellen Rosenblum. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yes. And 2011? 12 versus Dwight Holton. Dwight Holton made one mistake. He called <laughs> the medical cannabis program a train wreck. And that's all we needed. Mm-hmm. National organizations dumped almost a quarter of a million dollars into her campaign just because she didn't say what Dwight said. Right. We literally ran a not Dwight campaign, and she was the underdog in that Dwight campaign. Ain't right. Yeah. That, oh, that would have been good. Um, but she was the underdog. She got like upwards of 60% of yep. the vote because we just burned him on making a stupid decision of being proactively against medical cannabis. That should be a lesson that legislators heed right. when we're talking about these issues. It's okay to be reserved, but if you're going to come out against us, we're going to come get you because right. this is this is history, right? Like, Do you want to be on the right side of history or the wrong side of history? And what are your future ambitions? Because that's what's on the line here, and we're going to make sure that legislators know that. Word. I'd like to add to that, too, that uh, if you are a member of the Oregon cannabis business community, it would be a very good idea to join and get very actively involved in an association like the one that I run, the Oregon Retailers yep. of Cannabis Association. That is also a very effective way of being part of a, a larger operation that can help you interface with members of the legislature. I think Sam really hit the nail on the head in terms of what the mechanics of that look like. It's really important, no matter what, that folks connect with their representative, their senator. Make sure that you communicate your priorities to them, because it is literally their job to represent you in the Capitol. And if they're not doing that correctly, then like Sam said, you need to point that out to them and make sure that they understand that you will vote and support candidates that run against them. Now, don't do that in the lobbying meeting. That's right. frowned upon. But right. otherwise, there's a, a lot of ways that you can support ongoing efforts like what we're doing. I mean, certainly with Orca, we've got lobbyists in the building that we're constantly taking meetings and we're trying to advance these pieces of uh, policy. Uh, we discussed earlier some of the accessibility to the Oregon legislature. You can Google OLIS, which is O-L-I-S. It's the Oregon Legislative Information System. We're actually very lucky in Oregon compared to most places in the country. Extremely transparent. It's yeah, extremely it's a really transparent. Robust, like, and it's extremely tech tool. That's right. And you can access any pieces of information, any pieces of testimony that have been uploaded, usually within 24 hours, live videos of any hearings or any committee meetings that are held. And you can see all that from the comfort of your own home whenever you like. So we've got an extremely open system here where people can participate and track them very closely but it is a full-time job right and that's why we have folks that are dedicated to doing that that are dedicated to tracking these bills 
being in the Capitol when they come up for hearings, which happens often. Yep. And so it's not practical for everybody to make it out to all of them if they are also running a business or have a full-time job of their own. Right. So that's one of the areas where we come in. It's one of the areas where groups like Sam comes works. in. Yeah. That's right. Uh, the, the New Revenue Coalition has been extremely active in making tremendous headway on the social consumption issue. Mm -hmm. uh, as we discussed earlier, Adam Smith from the Craft Cannabis Alliance has been doing excellent work spearheading the yeah. export conversation. Yep. Uh, and, and our association has been trying to help advance all of those causes as well as some of the specific bills that we're working on. So just make sure that you get involved. Throw yourself into the mix. How, support, how can people find your organizations online you can check us out at uh, www.oregoncannabisretailers.com okay yeah and we're at newrevenuecoalition.com and uh, again just to really want to hammer in the point casey and i are here to help regardless of what level of involvement you want to have we're here to help whether it's you need help crafting a custom email or you just want to send our pre-written template right? right it's nice if you can share more right details about about your background and why you really care but whatever level of interest you have in getting involved here we're here to help you know we'll get you meetings uh we'll link you up with other people in your community whatever it is that you want to do we're here to help uh, all right, so that is fantastic. We ask our guests uh, one final question. We're we're sh we're getting short on time, so let's keep it sort of sort of brief. But how do you guys define quality cannabis? As people who you know, speaking for myself, yeah, the nose knows. The nose. I knows. go by smell one hundred percent of the time. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's some visual inspection, but uh, I like something that really stands out. I want something that's got a very dynamic smell to it. It's got a level of complexity to it, and obviously, if it's very potent, that helps. Yeah, it's funny. Um, when I was reading this question and thinking about what my response would be, um, it, it, it was not a typical response. I mean, I think you ask that question, the general public, a lot of it's like, what's the THC content, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that type of thing. And and I, I think that's one indication that some people like to look at. And I think it's going to fall by the wayside as the major indication after people and science and education continues to grow uh, outside of the internal space you know, spectrum where it has existed for so long. Um, but I'm with Casey. I mean, bag appeal. I'm a bag appeal man, right? Yeah, exactly. I, it's the same way I was in uh, I was in college, the same way I am now. How does it look? How does it smell? How does it taste? Mm -hmm. Straight out of a joint, right? I want I want those, I want the terps. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, and it's hard to find that stuff. You know, even in a commercial market, people are really still trying to figure out that bag appeal is king, right? Well, and, and Sam kind of hit the nail on the head, too, in regards to potency. I made a comment about, obviously, more potent pot is, is good, but the numbers that are associated with the testing have such little are, correlation. Almost arbitrary. Right, right, right. Potency doesn't necessarily mean a high testing, like, number. That's right. I can't right. tell you how many times I've encountered a strain that only tests at 15, 16%, but maybe because of the terpene profile. Four, or, yeah, 4.5. And it'll put me down like a trank dart. Floor. Yeah. You know, so it's really a, a subjective metric and you really got to use your eyes, ears, nose, taste buds, everything. Indeed. All right. Uh, let's leave it there. Uh, Sam Chapman of the New Revenue Coalition and Casey Houlihan of the Oregon Retailers of Cannabis Association. Thank you guys for coming on the show. That, this was really great. Um, you guys are awesome. You were listening to This is Cannabis on X-Ray FM. We'll be right back. This is Cannabis is brought to you by the Open Cannabis Project. The Open Cannabis Project is an independent nonprofit whose mission is to build a transparent and open source platform of cannabis data. Thanks to nearly 80 years of prohibition, cannabis is suffering from a bad case of both misinformation and missing information. The Open Cannabis Project is on a mission to fill this information gap, creating a public records database that can help bring fairness and transparency to everything from intellectual property disputes to lab result issues. Learn how you can donate your anonymized chemical data and help fill the information gap at opencannabisproject.org. Thank you for staying with us. You are listening to This is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. Uh, my name is Lee Henderson, co-founder of Portland Craft Cannabis Company, High Five Farms, and uh, my co-host Emma Chasen is off this week, and um, I miss her, but uh, there it is. I wanted to, um, we're about to do recommendations, but I just wanted to say thank you one more time to Sam and Casey. I thought that was a really uh, substantive and, con and instructive uh, conversation. Uh, one thing we d we didn't get to um, when we were wrapping up is that the this this session is going to go until the end of June, so um, there's of course a time sensitivity to this in uh, insofar as it's not you know insofar as these issues are important, uh, but we have some time to agitate for uh, these bills which the editorial position of this is cannabis definitely strongly advocates for. So I just wanted to, to throw that out there. Um, I wanted to briefly tell you guys uh, my recommendation this week. I saw a really, really cool movie 
um, the other last weekend. Uh, it's called Miles Ahead. Uh, it is a biopic on Miles Davis, uh, and it was written and directed by a guy called Don Cheadle, who's uh, kind of like one of my favorite actors. Uh, he's he's just such a solid actor. He's so good. He was in the movie Traffic. He was in all the Ocean's Eleven movies. Um, I'm trying to think of others. He's on a new show called, I think it's called Black Monday. Um, uh, you totally recognize him if you don't know him by name. Like He's a really, really, really uh, solid actor. And this was sort of his passion project. I did a bunch of reading about this movie after I saw it on Wikipedia. Took a long time to get it made. Uh, he plays Miles Davis in the movie, and um, he does a really great job. And the what was really, really especially cool about this movie is that it's not, it's totally not your standard sort of, you know, music biopic, like, you know, with all respect to like Ray or, or the Johnny Cash movie or whatever. It is it is sort of a gonzo picture. It's very electric. There's sort of a there's a, a a fantasy sort of crime element that Miles Davis, you know, goes on. Uh, it's a very, very, very cool Fast moving, uh, very well done, beautiful like cinematography, very stony. Um, again, Don Cheadle is fantastic as Miles Davis. I'm a huge Miles Davis guy, and um, you know, and and I think the the picture really does. Uh, a lot of justice to uh, Miles. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it shows Miles Davis and all of his different sort of, I mean, he wasn't the friendliest dude in the world. And, and Don Cheadle, you know, again, who wrote the movie, like does does not present Miles Davis as, as anything other than I think he probably was in real life. Uh, but it's an awesome flick. And it sort of fell under the radar. I think it came out maybe a year or two ago. Um, it didn't get a lot of love, I think. Uh, I think critically it got some love, but it didn't do all that well. Um, but I do recommend the movie. It's, um, I guess I rented it. Maybe it's available on Netflix. But I wanted to let you guys know, if you hadn't heard of it, that it, I thought it was great. So um, lots, of, lots of great music in it. Again, very stony movie. Um, very cool. Very fun. Um, all right. So... All right, that does it for this week's This Is Cannabis. Please remember to email questions and comments to thisiscannabis at xray.fm. Uh, also, please be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at thisiscanna on xray. This Is Cannabis is engineered by Will Romy, and our theme music is the song Impossible OK by Portland artist Motric. Wubba, wubba, wubba. Good night and good luck, and thanks so much for listening.